This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Sky Cleary. Sky is a philosopher at Columbia University in New York City, and she joined me to explain the essential features of existentialism, which she outlines in her co-edited book, How to Live a Good Life, A Guide to Choosing Your Personal Philosophy. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 RRR FM with me, Amy Mullins. And I'm delighted now to have with me Sky Cleary, who is a philosopher. And Sky um, is a lecturer at both Columbia University and Barnard College in New York City. And um, she has co-edited and written an essay in a wonderful new book, which is out through Penguin, and it's called How to Live a Good Life, A Guide to Choosing Your Personal Philosophy. And it is co-edited with two of her colleagues and friends, Massimo Pigliucci and Daniel Kaufman. And uh, I welcome Sky now. And thank you so much, Sky, for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Amy. It's really wonderful to finally get a chance to catch up with you because I certainly have been aware of your work for quite a while and I think I first might have come across it on Twitter when I saw some of your Eon magazine essays Mm -hmm. and it's such a great platform to have these initial conversations about philosophy and I think that's what I love about this book that you've co-edited is the fact that you can kind of dip into a whole range of ideas and get an introduction to some of the thinking behind different philosophies. So we are going to touch particularly on existentialism, which I know is your particular area of interest, but also I should mention that you have previously written a book in 2015, which is called Existentialism and Romantic Love. So we might get to touch on that as well and draw in some of that really interesting content into this conversation. But first of all, when we're looking at this book, How to Live a Good Life, you've chosen, I think it's uh, 15 different topics and you've invited various philosophers to actually explain these philosophies um, and how these philosophies have affected their lives. But I do want to start with the introduction and I guess the basis for a philosophy of life and the whole point of this book. So you kind of have this proposition that we all kind of have a philosophy of life, whether we realise it or not. And a lot of that is shaped from our childhood and, um, you know, the formative experiences in our early years. And it's quite important in philosophy to examine one's life, examine one's values, examine the principles and reasons behind our actions And philosophies can be a great framework for examining our lives and also examining, you know, what we hold dear in life. But first of all, I did want to ask about this philosophy of life framework. And to you, when you were thinking about a philosophy of life and what your philosophy of life is or has become, how would you answer that? Yeah, so I mean, so the book is based on the idea that if you have a metaphysics and a sense of ethics, so an idea of how the world works and a sense of how to treat others, then you have a philosophy of life. Yeah, as you say, whether you're aware of it or not, but a lot of people don't reflect on whether it's a a good philosophy of life. And I certainly 
had a, a philosophy of life which was very much a, a neoliberal capitalist um, kind of framework uh, that I was uh, working through and, and studying and, and, and I worked in uh, financial markets initially and I guess it, it kind of I came to a realization in my 20s later in my 20s that I started questioning, you know, what what is a good life? Because I'd had a career and I was uh, reasonably successful, and you know, I, I'd kind of internalized the idea that you know a good life is, yeah, first of all, having a having a good job and that sort of thing, but also finding the one, getting married and living happily ever after. And you know, I was watching way too many you know, romantic comedies and things like that. But I was kind of, I felt, um, I, I began to realize I was kind of indoctrinated into into the this um, kind of narrative. But I was looking around and seeing a lot of unhappy marriages and bad marriages and bad relationships and, you know, the divorce rate somewhere, you know, maybe not quite 50%, but, you know, getting towards there. And I just wasn't sure about whether that was the formula for a good life. And, you know, I had boyfriends who were, um, one in particular who was complaining that I was studying too much and working too much and not having enough time for him. So I started to kind of run into this conflict between my career and my love life. And actually, it was around that time that uh, a book came out called um, Tete a Tete by Hazel Rowley, um, which was about Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, the existential philosophers. And I remember being really struck by this, that they were dealing with a lot of the same questions that I was about kind of challenging the traditional romantic narrative and challenging what they were expected to do and um, and going against that. And of course, they paid quite a high price for it, but they were still very uh, successful in their work and they had a famous relationship. So that was really the point where uh, existentialism kind of struck me as, as something fascinating and, and questioning the status quo and, and um, challenging those kind of traditional narratives. And so, yeah, it started to change around that point. And I guess another thing that really appealed to me about existentialism in particular was that it wasn't about, you know, armchair theorizing and abstractions, which is, you know, I did study some philosophy in my undergraduate degree, but I kind of didn't really get into it then. But the existential philosophers were thinking about how they could create a philosophy to be lived. And so this book actually came about because I was speaking with my friend Massimo Colucci on Dan Kaufman's podcast, and we were all talking about how philosophy had actually radically changed the courses of our lives and who, and it helped us all to live better lives, like on a, on a practical sense, not just an academic sense. And so that was when we thought, oh, we should we should write a book about this and get other people because we, we knew other people like um, Buddhists and, and um, Confucian, people studying Confucian philosophy who were thinking about how these philosophies could actually be applied to to, to life and, and how it could be helpful and inspire changes for the better. So basically I went from being like a capitalist worker bee to, you know, an existential philosopher and eventually, you know, did an MBA and, and got my PhD in, in existential philosophy. Well, it's certainly on the face of it, a, a massive change. And it's also, you know, not that surprising because when you're talking about these pre-existing notions about how one's life trajectory should be and the types of milestones you should tick off. There do seem to be a lot of people who tick off milestones and go, okay, well, you know, I've got the corporate career, I've reached the top of the tree, you know, I'm a successful manager or something like that. 
or I founded my dream business and I've met someone and gotten married and perhaps, you know, they've done the things they thought were expected of them and, you know, they seem to think they were right for them at the time, but maybe a certain moment in their life has triggered them to reevaluate whether it actually was something that they actively chose or even whether if they'd examined it through a different framework, they would have made the same choices. And I think that's really why I also was drawn to existentialism in my early 20s. And I, you know, had the great fortune of studying some philosophy. Thankfully, they taught me existentialism early because <laughs> if I'd only studied about Plato's tripartite soul, I might have had a very skewed view about what the human soul is and, um, you know, what we're all driven by. But um, I think reading about particularly Jean-Paul Sartre's view on freedom, which is quite a radical version of freedom, that kind of shook me out of myself and made me think, oh, hang on, we are all making active choices, whether we even realise it or not. And it is it has a quite liberating effect. And on the face of it, it feels like you can almost conquer the world or do anything. But there is a lot more complexity to existentialism, isn't there, in terms of how our freedom actually operates. So I guess I wanted to get to the kind of nitty gritty of existentialism, which you draw out in this book, but also I wanted to highlight where I guess Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir do differ and where having an outsider perspective, being a, a woman writing in the time that Simone de Beauvoir was writing, she did have a really interesting view on freedom and just how free we are and how we make our decisions. So first of all, could you share with us how existentialism broadly is formulated? What are the major principles that underpin existentialism from a, probably a Sartrean point of view um, as a starting point? Sure. Um, so it is a little bit hard to define because um, there's not a, like an official school of thought about existentialism. And it's really like a group of philosophers who were kind of exploring certain themes like choice, freedom, responsibility, anxiety, um, authenticity, and things like this. And, you know, it's funny, um, Simone de Beauvoir actually said that people would often ask her what existentialism was and asked her to define it and it, she said it really annoyed her at the time because mm. no one asked Hegel or Kant to summarize their philosophies in you know 25 words or less um, so but of course you have to start somewhere and I think she sort of backtracked back from that and um, certainly some of the core principles that uh, you know are most commonly associated with Sartre but Beauvoir certainly did um, take these on but adapted them a little bit is I mean, first of all existence precedes essence is probably the really core kind of catchphrase of existentialism and so that idea is that we're thrown into the world um, we arrive without a guidebook or at least the guidebooks we do have are, are questionable um, so we don't choose to be born we don't choose into what situations we're born but once we get here and once we grow up we uh, then have to choose our lives so that is we have to create our essence and create who we are but the problem is, as, as Sartre says, we're condemned to be free. So although on the one hand, we're free to choose our actions, it's not like libertinism or hedonism. Existentialism is balanced by uh, responsibility. And so if you have, if you're free for your actions, but you're also responsible for them, then that's anxiety inducing. But the goal is to live as I guess authentically as possible, but even though authenticity is is kind of a receding goal, but it means 
not finding our true selves, like kind of in the cliched version of authenticity, but really creating ourselves. And that is through our choices and through kind of projects and goals that that we set up for ourselves. So where Simone de Beauvoir kind of comes in and she, she says in The Ethics of Ambiguity that if you respect freedom for yourself, then you should respect it for other people too, because we coexist, because other people are there. And um, so that's one way in which Beauvoir's um, slightly different to Jean-Paul Sartre. And, and the other way is like, as you mentioned, Jean-Paul Sartre is famous for saying, you know, we're radically free, whereas Beauvoir was saying, well, actually, we're not all radically free because we're thrown into these structures such as uh, oppression is one of the structures which um, prevents us from being free, um, poverty, ignorance. So she kind of said, you know, there's these qualifications on our freedom, which mean that, you know, how can you be free if you have such limited choices? And in fact, um, Sartre and Beauvoir had this argument about um, a girl in a harem. And Sartre argued, no, well, she's she's radically free as anyone else, and she can choose to think as she wishes. But Beauvoir said, well, if she doesn't have the power to act on her choices, um, if her choice is to stay in an oppressed situation or try and escape and risk death, almost certain death, then it's not a fair choice. So Simone de Beauvoir went much deeper into the, the uh, situatedness of humans. And so we're not, she acknowledged that we're not all, you know, privileged white men like Jean-Paul Sartre, but um, other, some people are, are just don't have or don't have easy access to that type of radical freedom. Mm. And, you know, the fact that we're inhabiting different bodies even um, and the f- the fact that when you see a man you have all these connotations, instant biases and understandings of what man is, just as she was talking about in the second sex, woman as being other. But it does make me think about when we're thinking about those, those differences between Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, how valuable it is to actually have women and people with different lived experiences engaging with philosophy because we often may not pick up on what some of our biases are when we're talking about philosophy and arguing about which philosophy is better and how they work in real life. And the point that Simone made um, is that, you know, philosophy is meant to be lived. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what is so great about existentialism is it's not, as you say, this doctrine, this kind of manifesto that's set out where you follow certain rules. It's actually meant to be a living, breathing, evolving project that's very individual and different to each person. So from that perspective, when you're looking at, um, I guess, self-examination and being more self-aware, because that is something which you hopefully come to when you're looking at philosophies, is you start to examine your life and question the things that you're doing and how would this fit if I was to apply these kind of um, principles or ideas to the way that I'm currently living. One of the key features of existentialism is about being authentic and also not being in bad faith. And in fact, living in bad faith is kind of like a major no-no in existentialism. So I did want to ask about the concept of bad faith and how it might affect us in ways that kind of prevent us from living a good life or prevent us from choosing things freely and in a cogent, um, very self-aware way. How, uh, how do we act when we're acting in bad faith? 
Yeah, so pretty much exactly as you said, you know, going along with the flow and um, doing things kind of on autopilot. So the opposite of bad faith is you know, authenticity. And that authenticity is not about finding our true self or waiting for it to blossom from the depths of our psyche. But what existence precedes essence means is that, you know, we have to create our essence for ourselves and not just do what other people tell us to do or what, or what we're expected to do. But it's also going back to what Simone de Beauvoir was saying about oppression. So, you know, authenticity is um, about being able to create ourselves in ways that we choose. It's really difficult because sometimes, you know, often we make mistakes and, you know, we don't really always know what reflects our authentic self. And, you know, pressure from society and culture and friends and family are constantly pushing us in different directions. And, People are telling us what we should be doing, who we're supposed to be, you know, who we should be dating. Um, and Jean-Paul Sartre actually talks about this as um, other people being like drain holes, like sucking our being away from us. Now, that's a very negative way to look at it. But I see he has a really good point because there is a risk of becoming too dependent on other people's approval and too beholden to, to their views of us and so going too far in that direction, that that would be bad faith. But it's difficult because we do often want to please others and, and feel accepted and, you know, we're social beings and, you know, often we do betray ourselves for, for other people's benefit. And Sartre talks about it in quite an interesting way. He's, he says, you know, there are a couple of different layers of self-knowledge and the first sort of layer is just looking in the mirror and seeing how you look today. And so it's a very superficial kind of introspection. And then there's a deeper kind of introspection, which is basically philosophizing. But there's a kind of a third dimension of understanding ourselves. And that can only be found you know, with other people. Um, and through the, that's why he, one of his famous terms is, you know, the gaze of the other and understanding who we are through our interactions with other people, through kind of bumping up against, you know, them and their projects in the world. And other people actually reveal aspects of our being that we just couldn't know without them. And, you know, sometimes they challenge us in good ways, um, but sometimes they challenge us in bad ways, which is why he, um uh, the term hell is other people kind of comes from that because he's saying that, you know, it can be kind of tormenting to have have to face other people and, and see what they, they think of you um, and to take that into account. So Sartre basically said we're always stuck in this kind of dynamic between um, wanting to know what the other person thinks of us and that Simone de Beauvoir was a lot more optimistic and she says that, you know, actually we can transcend that kind of power dynamic. You know, why does everything have to be about domination? And so for her, being in these kind of cycles of, is, is bad faith, being in, in that constant tension all the time is bad faith but what we need to do is rise above it to create authentic relationships which are based on friendship and um, so authenticity is really about trying to find that balance trying to create those good relationships with other people and it was interesting really when you were talking about um, romantic love or um, relationships in that sense there seems to be a theme where friendship is really the basis of a kind of authentic love and that having that as the part that is strongest seems to be able to enable, you know, a really rich relationship where one can actually criticise and take 
critiques from the other person without having this kind of dread or that, you know, one can take on feedback and not feel deeply threatened. And, you know, when it's coming from the right person who you have that deep friendship with, it certainly enables you to have a a better life in that regard as well. Yeah, I agree. And um, Simone de Beauvoir's definition of authentic love is that it's a mutual recognition of two freedoms. And so that's about respecting it and acknowledging each other's freedom and not being possessive and jealous and dominating, but also um, supporting each other. I mean, not in like um, at the cost of your own kind of being or, or becoming, but it's like a mutual support of one another. And I see a lot of commonality between, you know, Simone de Beauvoir's idea here and uh, the Nietzschean idea of, of great friends that he says something like, you know, great friends should be a, an arrow and longing for the Superman and or the Ubermensch. And that's um, so and what he's saying is that, you know, great friends kind of open up possibilities for one another that they might not have seen on their own and they support and they encourage each other and kind of push each other like further. And which is about yeah, not be, as you say, not being, you know, tolerant and just going along with, with whatever the other person says, because that's not a constructive type of relationship. And another great quote from Nietzsche, he says, let your pity for your friend conceal itself under a hard shell. You should break a tooth biting upon it and then it's going to have delicacy and sweetness. Um, and I do like that quote because it shows that just being totally accepting of, of everything the other person does, that's not helpful for people. And, you know, the best friendships do have space and a, a kind of allowance for you know, constructive criticism and disagreements and, and challenges. Um, and one of Nietzsche's metaphors that I really like is that Kind of relationships are a bit like gardens, and so you want to, you know, give some spots nurture, and you know, sometimes storms mess it up, and you need to repair it. But you know, gardens need to be tended, and then they can flourish. And so, you know, a flourishing friendship is one that is, you know, both supportive but also constructively critical. And that's so interesting because it makes me think of Sartre and Beauvoir and the fact that they had disagreements. But that's not a negative situation in that particular context. These are ways that you continue to improve your thinking, to push each other outside of your comfort zones. They were companions for life and had this deep friendship as a basis and also that philosophical exchange which continued across their lives. And it seems like in that regard, at least, they were enacting something which you know not everyone necessarily will have Um, But that's also, I think, why people love philosophy and why having these debates and challenging each other in an ideas sense and even in a values sense can be quite invigorating and can lead to unexpected positive outcomes. Exactly. Yeah. And I I also want to add that it's not about being like a jerk to each other or anything. No. Um, But it's just. We're not talking about arguing like fighting. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's being, it's like constructive criticism, not Mm. destructive criticism. And yeah. And I think Sartre and de Beauvoir very much did have that kind of relationship. Um, Although after reading Kate Kirkpatrick's book, actually, I realized that maybe Sartre was quite harsh on her and uh, on Beauvoir um, and maybe sometimes went a little too far, but I think Beauvoir, you know, gave as good as she got and so they were uh read each other's work um 
a lot and, and gave feedback. So yeah, and that, that's, you know, when I write, I try and, you know, convince my friends to read it and read my work and say, you know, please don't hold back. <laughs> Let me know what you think. But that's because I know that if I get like good criticism, then I, it can help improve my work. Um, and I'm happy to do that for my friends too. So, And one of the things that cropped up in Kate's book where Sartre and her diverged and was looking at human nature and the way that we should be and how he was often exerting or imposing this kind of sense of rationality or at least a suppressing of emotion, like that we shouldn't be kind of driven by our emotions or let those emotions kind of overtake us. But it seemed like um, Simone de Beauvoir had a more realistic view of human nature and the fact that we can't all be kind of cold, unfeeling, solidly rational beings all the time. Right. We're not robots. Absolutely. And Mm. yeah, Sartre used to give her a really hard time for crying. Even at her mother's funeral, um, she was sobbing and, you know, she felt like she had to take, you know, antidepressants and and make sure she wasn't crying in front of him. So he sounds awful in that respect. Um, But yeah, I mean, she, she didn't really think that there was you know a specific thing like human nature in in terms of like masculine nature or feminine nature but um I think what she was more attuned to was the idea of facticity versus transcendence so facticity are are the facts of our lives like the bodies that we're born with but transcendence is what we do to overcome the facticity of our lives so she was um like I was talking about earlier it's um she was much more attuned to the things that hold us in our facticity or um and things that prevent us from from transcending because existentially um to live you know live authentically is to transcend beyond the given beyond just what we're supposed to do and that's why she was also very active politically and sort of advocated for getting getting politically engaged and working towards changing systems of of injustice and and inequality it's interesting because when we're talking about sex and gender it brings me to Simone de Beauvoir's view of authentic love and how she seems to rail against marriage as an institution and she's not totally against it for everyone but she does seem to as you say push up against these kind of milestones that people might unthinkingly do. So I did want to ask about those situations that I think a lot of women would find themselves in even today and which you brought up early on in our discussion about the kind of pressures that are placed upon women in particular that Simone de Beauvoir was grappling with that a lot of these other existentialists weren't because they weren't really as cognizant of the challenges that women were and still are facing. Yeah, and they were mostly men um, and mostly not married, although some philosophers like Heidegger certainly were. But yeah, so she really um, thought marriage was dangerous because it comes with so much baggage, so much historical baggage where the wife is expected to be subordinate to the husband. But she didn't write off marriage altogether. She kind of said, you know, there are possibilities for authentic marriage if it can be equal and you know respectful. And certainly she chose not to have kids and she she never wanted to be a mother. And I think she she did respect that choice for 
other people. So, I mean, one way to think about this is, one way to think about freedom is in terms of freedom from and freedom to. So I think Beauvoir certainly acknowledged that we can't be free from everything because some things are out of our power, whether it's her crying occasionally or, you know, um, maybe animal attraction. Um, So that those sort of things aren't necessarily within our power, but what we can do is we can control our behaviour. We can choose whether to act on our attractions and so that's freedom from, but certainly freedom to is um, equally important. That's what you have the power to do. So I guess once we've freed ourselves from, from chains, whether it's passions or expectations or this you know, internalised desire to get married, then we're free to reinvigorate relationships in more authentically meaningful ways. And what that means is that we're not automatically subscribing to the institution of marriage, but rather creating a relationship that works for the consenting adults that are involved in the relationship. And that is what she thought would be an authentic relationship based on respect of one another's freedom and based on being better friends. Well, hopefully people can read through the different essays from the different philosophers that you've engaged with this project um, and that then they can see what starts to resonate for them. Yep, I think that sounds great. <laughs> well, people can check out the book. It's called How to Live a Good Life, A Guide to Choosing Your Personal Philosophy. And uh, as I said, it's co-edited by Massimo Piliucci, Sky Cleary and Daniel Kaufman and is published through Penguin. Thanks so much, Sky, for taking the time to chat with us about existentialism in particular. And yeah, I do hope that you have a nice time back in Australia before you have to head back over to New York under a Biden presidency, which might be a little bit different. Yes. Well, I hope so. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much, Amy. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, fingers crossed. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.